This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is W. Kamau Bell, a stand-up comedian, director, and author. He executive produces and is the host of the Emmy Award-winning docuseries United Shades of America. He's also the director of a new Showtime docuseries called We Need to Talk About Cosby. Welcome uh, to the show, Kamau. It's so nice to see you again. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Good to see you, too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we'll just get right into it. I will start off by reading our first letter where the subject is Betrayed Boss. Dun, dun, dun. This one is the longest one by far, and it's also, it, it goes places. So just, you know, prepare yourself accordingly. All right. I recently got promoted and became the manager for a team that is currently negotiating for a union contract. Before this promotion, I would have been part of that bargaining unit, and I helped lay a lot of the groundwork to start the unionization process. I'm happy they're unionizing. Part of the impetus for unionization was a lack of support and direction at work. So when I got promoted, my boss and I made sure to create work plans with concrete goals and quarterly feedback and evaluation points, none of which had been present before. We'd been practicing this more structured approach for about three months, and everyone seemed to be thriving. Everyone's work was improving. And I felt good. Last week, I was totally shocked when I learned in a meeting with my boss and HR that my team had written them an email talking about all the ways I was a toxic boss and a horrible leader. I was completely aghast, as was HR, my boss, and several other colleagues who had only heard positive reviews about how I was supporting the team until this point. My boss and HR met with my team later this week, then met with me again separately to discuss their concerns. I found out that about one-third of the things my team said were not true. Another third was related to issues no one had ever elevated to me before, and the other third were unpopular decisions I'd had to make in the company's best interests that had my own boss's backing and support. My boss and HR have been very supportive, and we are trying our best to find solutions, but I feel very betrayed. My boss thinks some of these reactions are a result of finally having some structure and accountability. I used to work closely with the people I now manage during the unionizing campaign. I thought we were close and that they could trust me to raise any issues directly. And it really hurts to know they lied and went over my head to essentially try and get me fired. I still have to have check-ins weekly with all of them. And in these meetings, they keep saying how helpful and supportive I have been in their work. I told my boss in HR that I can't continue to do my job if every time I make a decision that not everyone likes, they go behind my back. They told me they understood, but that they also want me to continue in my role and are trying everything they can to support me. Part of me wants to leave to find another job, but another part of me wants to stay because I don't want to set the precedent that folks can just pressure anyone in this position out of their job over unpopular decisions. Like I said, goes places. That was uh, the whole season of television. Did you... I, I found myself, I, I, I try not to like mentally react in GIFs as if I'm on like a bad part of Twitter several years ago, but there was, there were several moments when I felt like that Don Draper GIF of just like, that's what the money is for. <laughs> like it, it definitely felt like, yeah, this does sound like the first time you've ever been anyone's boss yeah. because it sounds like your expectations are pretty intense. And that's not to say that there's not maybe anything here in this letter that might be, um, 
a, a legitimate or, or an understandable uh, grievance, I suppose. But yeah. I, I definitely did get the feeling of just like, I want to threaten to quit and I want to be begged to stay. I want everyone to say, we're so sorry. You're so beautiful. You're 10 yeah. feet tall. You're made of gold. Your eyes yeah. and your heart are crystals. We <laughs> love you. Where do you think is, where do you go from there? What do you want to start with? I mean, it's hard with these things because I first want to be like, like there's questions you want to know, like how old are you? Because <laughs> like, I think that like some of this is like, you know, when you sort of move through work and job, I had the for first thought was heavy as the head that wears the crown. Like that's just part of it. Like if you are a manager type in a manager position, managing people, you can't be friends with the people you used to be friends with when you weren't a manager. It just becomes, you can be friendly and you might have a friend in there, but at some point you're going to have to go to that friend and be like, look, move this to here today. <laughs> like there's just no way to sort of like, and if you don't do it, there will be consequences. I, you know, I had a lot of like retail jobs and because I showed up on time within a few months, I would be assistant manager just because I was like showing you up on time yeah. and not yelling at people or not being, or being generally pleasant. And I would find myself in positions where I had to be like, and I sort of, this was my tactic. Look, and so I'll, I used the video store as the job that I had that was like, look, I don't care if these videotapes are dusty. But the boss told me they need to be not dusty. I don't care, but I guess we got to do make these not dusty. I, you know, so why it's don't coming we just from do corporate. that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, yeah, like I don't care, which I really didn't care. But it was just like, but I also was like, look. Sort of to be clear about the fact, I get that this thing that I'm asking you is not important, but it is the thing that we're being tasked with doing. And if we could just do it quicker, we can be done with it. And it's actually the same way I parent. <laughs> and look at just, where the video store industry is now. Yeah, that's so clearly because I left. Uh, if I'd stayed, it would still be on top. But uh, yeah, so I think there's just about like how you you have to find out how you personally boss. And I think you have to understand that like it's that if you are in charge of people, it's just not always going to be fun because some people don't like having a boss under any circumstance. And especially if you maybe if they think you're younger than them or they think you're not as authoritative as them or they think you're not. You're, you haven't been born the right gender to be a boss or whatever those things are, or you haven't, whatever. How you're expressing yeah. yourself in the world is not how a boss expresses himself. So there's all these things that I think are go into that, but you got to sort of find how you want a boss. And I think the other part of this, and this is what I took from the my jobs like this, don't take, in, don't take your personal power from your job unless it's a job that you really, like, it's like your career, you know? Yeah, I, I think that it would be really useful to this letter writer to put a little bit less of themselves in this job, by which I don't mean like stop caring or, or show up drunk and five hours late every day. Just like there's so much invested in this idea of like, I thought they were my friends mm -hmm. and yes. this is, you know, I have, I have all of my emotions here and that's pretty intense. And I, you know, letter writer, I want to leave room for the possibility that you, you know, your reports genuinely brought up a lot of stuff that you don't have control over or that isn't your fault or that isn't actually a problem as you see it. That may very well be true. They may have bad grievances. I don't want to just assume that they're right on all counts. But if your reaction to this is just, maybe I should quit, tell me that I shouldn't quit, make me want to stay, but I'm not sure that I want to stay. I don't even want to talk to you anymore. I don't want to do these reports. Like, that is not going to cultivate an environment where they're honest with you about their frustrations. Mm -hmm. And that will only prove you know, that they felt like, I, I wonder if some of this intense defensiveness is part of why they didn't bring it to you directly. Mm. Um, and I don't know, maybe they felt that they did. Um, maybe there was something that you missed. 
Um, maybe the vibe was just so off that they thought, let's let's go over their head. I, I don't know. But if you do want to stay and you have thus far chosen not to quit, you do have to find a way to go into work every day. And if you go into work every day thinking, these are all my ex-friends and they stabbed me in the back and I don't know how to go on, things will not get better. And if you go in thinking, these are my employees and they had a lot of trouble and I want to figure out how can I make it more easy and accessible for them to bring some of their complaints to me first so I can at least try to address them before, you know, they escalate, then things will probably feel a little bit less tense at work. Um, But you won't be able to do that if you still think of them as your buddies who let you down. Yeah, it's funny. I watch a lot of it's I go down YouTube holes and one of my recent YouTube holes is watching videos about a lot of Silicon Valley companies that were scams (laughs) or Silicon Valley companies or tech companies that are successful, but aren't run very, that are, that the people who lead them aren't nice people. But you find that like a lot of the people who run these companies and not even the ones that are scams, but just that like, there's a way in which they are where they're not, they're only popular because their companies are making money, not because they're nice people. You know, people like to talk about somebody like Steve Jobs. Apparently he was hard to work with and he's one of the quote unquote good ones. And so I think there's a sense of this that like, some of these people, the thing they have in common is they don't mind being unpopular for the in the moment. They don't mind people not not liking them if they're getting the results they want. Now, I can't live in that kind of work environment where I'm a boss where people are constantly mad at me and I'm just sort of saying do it and stay up till it's done. But there are clearly a type of people who can do that. I don't think those are good people. And I think a lot of times those companies are troubled. But I do think that there's a thing about like when you are in the position of being the boss you have to deliver unfortunate news to the people you work with and just sort of be like, ta-da. And I, as somebody who is the boss on, if not all my projects, many of my projects, um, I you have to understand how do I deliver the, the ta-da and just be okay with it, knowing that somebody's going to be like, but I thought I already did it or, but I don't want to do it again. But you're like, but you are. <laughs> you know, like, so I think figuring out your own techniques of how to be the boss you are and then I also think that if the job's not working for you, it's not working for you. Like, there, unless it's like there's some other thing happening here that I'm not aware of. Like, if the job's not working for you, there's no shame in finding a, a job that works better for your life. Yeah, yeah. That last line felt pretty huffy to me. You know, <laughs> if you do want to consider leaving to find another job, you should do that. You should mm-hmm. consider it and you should look at your other options. Yeah. You know, I don't, I, I want to stay because I don't want to set a precedent. Boy, you know, that just seems like a recipe for like cutting your nose off to spite your face. Like, so you're going to stay there forever. You're never yeah. going to quit. You're going to be in this job for the rest of your life. Is that the idea? Yeah. And I like, felt a little bit like, is your job like the leader of a country? Cause it feels like otherwise you, you could probably find another job and find somebody who's maybe better suited for the job that you're leaving. I mean, you know, and I know there's also some sort of pressures. Maybe this job is paying you more than any other job will pay you. You know, this is where it also becomes about if there's a reason that you have to keep this job because it has benefits and you need those benefits, then you just got to figure out how to make that job work best for you. While again, don't get your power from that job, get your power from your life that that job helps create. Yeah. You know, and the idea that like it would set a precedent that people can pressure anyone in this position out of their job. Like, I I just want to try to like reframe things here again. Like I can understand why you felt really surprised if, if things had been going really well in your one-on-one meetings. And I can even you know, extend room to the possibility that some of their concerns or frustrations or complaints were, you know, not reasonable. Um, But you're not being pressured at all. You have the full backing of HR and your boss. Everyone who has any power to make sure that you keep your job is saying, keep your job. 
uh, some of your employees are frustrated and that doesn't feel good. And I can imagine why that might make the emotional environment at work feel charged right now, but that is not the same thing as being pressured out of a job. And I think it's pretty important here to be really clear on who's got the power. Um, and it's not your employees who wrote a single email with a list of complaints. You know, like, again, I, I don't know what other options they might have had earlier. I just want to point out, letter writer, you say a third of their complaints weren't true. Okay. <laughs> a little, is it a little vague there? Is it yeah. like not true from HR's perspective? Because I imagine there's a lot of things mm. that like HR doesn't acknowledge to be true that, you know, on the ground employees do. And I wonder if some of that's more a difference. Like, did they just lie for like a third of this list of complaints? Just, mm-hmm. you know, fully like I... He materialized in my house last night and he set my bed on fire. Like, just pure. It's not true. It is physically impossible for me to do that. Yeah. I mean, like, yes. I, I mean, again, maybe it seems a little unlikely. It just feels like you were really quick to be like, and everything they said was bullshit. None of it had any merit. Okay. I, I got to tell you, if I worked for you and this was your response, I wouldn't really feel inclined to bring up concerns with you either. If, if you're just like, a third of it's a fucking lie. A third of it you never mentioned to me before. I've never heard about this. I'm shocked. I'm stunned. I can't believe this. Where was this last week? And the other third, well, it had to be done. So fuck you. Like, it just feels so, you are so unwilling to even countenance the possibility that any of their complaints could be genuine. And that coupled with like, they used to be my friends, make you sound pretty aggro and defensive, which is a horrible combination. I mean, one of the things that I've learned as when I am a boss is that a person can have a complaint about you that you think is unreasonable, but it doesn't mean you don't have to address it. So I think, for example, like there have been times people said, the way you communicate this to me, I feel like isn't, I, isn't, you're not communicating well with me. And I'm like, that's how I talk. <laughs> you know, like, so like, but then you go, do I want to continue working with this person? Is there something I can do to help this relationship go better? Because I want this person to continue to work here. Or it has been made clear to me that this person is important here. Doesn't mean that every, and I think this is the thing, is there, can you have valuable criticism that also hurts your feelings? Of course you can. And I think for me, it's like, there's, I can think of times when people have said that I've heard from other people that when you did this, they felt this way. And I'm like, I have no idea why that would be the case, but let me go circle back and see if I can clear that up. Even if I'm sitting here going, I don't think it makes, it's not about, does it make sense? It's about, is it conducive to the work here? And if it's not conducive to the work, then it's not about how I feel about it. It's about how do we make it, how do we make this a more, a, a more easy flowing work environment? Yeah. And like, it, it makes sense if it feels personally hurtful, you know, give yourself a little time privately, like in your office or during your commute or when you're at home or whenever to feel sad and say like, mm-hmm. that hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. And then once you've done that, let it go and move on to what can I do about it? Again, as their boss, where it's like hurt feelings are one thing, but you are their boss. Like they don't have the power to fire you in the way that you do. They're still fighting for a union they don't yet have. Uh, You're no longer part of that fight. And I think that, you know, might potentially clue you into a little bit as to why they might not think of you as their best, best friend. Um, And, you know, again, I would just say like, that's what the money is for. Like they might not be thrilled that you took that promotion during the union fight. And especially, yeah, that's it. I've realized that my, my uh, NATO Green, good friend of mine, who also is a union negotiator, I think he's aware of the fact that when you're sort of on these negotiating sides of the table, you can't always be popular, even with people who you are friends with. Like you just can't be. There's just it's impossible. And the minute you take a management job, there are people who probably are in their feelings about the fact that you used to be with us. And I think that, yeah, to me, this comes down to 
is there a reason that you have to keep this job, which there may be reasons you have to keep this job, and then trying to figure out a way to make it more workable for you while also not expecting this job to be your happy place? Because that's that's a bonus when your job is your happy place or a bonus mm-hmm. when it's always fun. And so I don't think that you, I think that's a part of this is like, understand that like this, there's a reason why it's a job. And I think that like, but also you have to be willing to, to engage with people who are critical of you, even if you don't fully understand the criticism, because otherwise you just become a person who's unreachable. Right. If your expectation is like in a, in a good version of my job, nobody would ever have complaints. Or if they did, they would always handle them exactly the way I want them to. They would always bring it to me first in the way that I found reasonable, presented their case in a way that I immediately agreed with. Like, that's not a reasonable expectation. So I would say, letter writer, you know, you of course have the option of looking for another job. You might find that some of these problems follow you into different positions if Mm -hmm. that's your expectation. Um, If you do decide to stay, I would encourage you to think about that one third of the complaints that you haven't found a way to dismiss, which is they weren't elevated to me before. So Mm. I'm sorry no one elevated it to you sooner. They've been elevated to you now. You know them now. You know, you have the information. Um, Do not dwell on whether or not you should have gotten the information sooner. This is not like a game of tag where you can scream no take backsies or something. Like you have the information. What can you do about it? And how can you encourage your employees when they are in these one-on-one meetings with you where they say things are great um, so that you can make it clear that you are available to have things elevated to you in a way that's not incredibly brittle or defensive or like crossing your arms in front of a closed door and saying, now tell me everything that you're mad about because I know you're mad because I heard it from (laughs) HR. Like genuinely try to consider why people might not be incredibly eager to go to a slightly brittle and defensive boss with a complaint and think about how you can become more approachable and say, you know, I know that you expressed a concern about X thing. Um, How is that going? Is there something that you think we should change? I can't promise you that I will give you exactly what you want, but if you tell me what you think we should do or what you think isn't working, I can promise you that I will take it under serious consideration. And then when I make my decision, I'll do my best to let you know why. And even if you don't agree with it, I can at least assure you that you will get like a clear, honest version of what my thoughts were before I made that call. There you go. And just, and yes, and accepting that like, if you're a boss, you're just not going to be popular all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think like this idea, my boss thinks that it's just finally that there's structure and accountability. I'm sure like a big change, like all these new check-ins is is an adjustment for everyone. And I'm also sure that some people are, you know, having a hard time dealing with being, you know, more closely supervised, whereas before they were just kind of given a free reign. I really don't think it's likely that all of this just came up out of the blue because everyone who works for you just hates being accountable. Mm-hmm. I just think like <laughs> statistically speaking, it is unlikely that everyone just made a bunch of shit up because they hate having quarterly check-ins and you're yeah. totally right and they were all wrong. I just yeah. think like statistically speaking, I think it's likelier that all of these people have at least a point or two and I would encourage you to consider them. Yes. And beyond that, you know, if your feelings continue to be really hurt, you know, go look at your paycheck. <laughs> or or go get a, like go get a job where you're not a boss, like or where you're not put in a position of supervising yeah. or or you know, I think that's the other thing too is like yeah. everybody's like, or not- taking a promotion in the middle of a union push like you don't think that was maybe an attempt on management's part to try to split you guys up? Ooh, look, and see, that's where it gets employed- into like a season of television. Like this feels very sort of like, like sort of like is this some sort of workplace drama? Like you know, mm-hmm. like it's mm-hmm. a, 
It's funny. All the shows I want to reference have become problematic because of people on the shows. But it's, it's so like, That's why I, I just like to start with problematic shows like Billions, where everyone's just a monster, and I have a go. great it's, time. Yeah, it sounds like low-rent Billions. Maybe it's mm-hmm. Millions or Thousands. <laughs> So we'll we'll move out of then um, professional troubles and into uh, personal troubles. And this question, really, uh, you know, I, I had I would say like a hackle up. I would say one of my hackles went up. Not all of my hackles, but one hackle. So I want to find a way to be useful to our next letter writer, and I also want to give some thought to why I might have felt a little bit skeptical or a little bit tweaked um, by the way that they framed this. The subject is, unfortunately, upholding binary. I am a trans man who feels unable to connect to the trans community. I think I have a lot of internalized transphobia that prevents me from truly participating, particularly with people that identify as non-binary. And now that I have a sibling who identifies as such, I feel I need to break this unfortunate pattern. I think perhaps my desire to move freely in the world has come into conflict with my own queer identity. And I'm hoping perhaps you can help me with mitigating activities. Thank you. You're welcome, letter writer. That was very polite. Thank you. I'm sorry I started by saying that you got up one of my hackles. Um, (laughs) You know, I guess I want to start by saying the general question, which is like, I'm part of this particular community. I feel unable to connect with anyone else in it. I think this is due to some some internalized prejudice particularly as it has to do with like a certain subcategory of this group. And it it always feels a little bit of a challenge. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm just too different or like, maybe you guys are just too close minded to accept. Like, does that, Mm -hmm. does that sound like I'm being really hard on this letter writer? I just got a little bit of that vibe of just like, I'm real special. (laughs) That's, it's funny. I mean, I think there is, to me, the thing I felt was, and I'm not trying to call this person out. It feels like I'm real broken is what it sounds like to me. It just sounds like that, like, and I think there's a recognize the recognition of broken in the, and I'm trying to think of a, I need to, I feel I need to break this unfortunate pattern. So to me, it's like the fact that like this, this is, there's some pattern here that is unfortunate that need that I need to break. That is not like, it doesn't feel so much to me in reading it, that it's like all of you are wrong and I'm the most special. It feels like I don't know where the, I don't know where to plug in here, you know? Mm. Yeah, it's possible that I was reading a little bit too much between the lines here, but uh, in like my impression was that the internalized transphobia is not like I'm periodically transphobic towards myself. It's I think transphobic thoughts about other trans people, mm-hmm. which is not internalized transphobia. If you're directing it towards someone else, even if you're not saying it out loud, it's not yeah. internalized. You're yeah. just being quiet about it, which is good. Like I'm glad you're not yelling at people, but. Um, you know, the the way that this framed is sort of like, I think this is an unfortunate pattern, but it's just how I react to people. But now that my sibling has come out as non-binary, in order to think of myself as a good person, I've got to stop. But it is kind of a natural reaction to those weird non-binary people. Can you? I, it's like to, to me, no, somebody who you. says like, I can't connect to the whole community. I'm like, everybody? Really? None of us? This whole time? You couldn't find one? And... um I think it's important for me to start to let some of that go so that I can find ways to actually be helpful to this letter writer. So I've, I've, I've exorcised my hackle. I, I was a little snarky. Um, I, I, you know, gave them whatever the trans equivalent of the cool girl monologue was, and I can let that one go. 
do you think that this is like a, an opportunity for the letter writer to start with maybe their sibling? Do you think maybe start with the community at large? Like where, where would you want somebody to start in such a I position? Mean, so I would, I'll relate this to myself in the way I can, which is not a direct one-to-one relationship. But as a black kid growing up pre-internet, I felt like I was the only black kid in the world who liked, loved stand-up comedy and liked the band Living Color, the rock, the black rock band Living Color and like the black rock band Fishbone. And I was like, nobody else is like me. So I understand that feeling of like, nobody else is like me. And I also understand that sometimes it makes you feel special and sometimes it makes you feel alienated. And you can sort of go swing wildly between like, that means I'm the most special person who's ever created and where it means like, I'm the only person, why am I broken? So I understand that part of it. So I do think the thing you're saying about like this person saying nobody's like me is like, well, that's clearly not true because talk about a community that's about a diversity of, of opinions and a diversity of how to talk about it. <laughs> like a, a community that is about like, there's lots of different ways to, to be on this planet. So to mm-hmm. me, I feel like, well, that's not, you just haven't connected with those people. But I think deeper than that, I'm just like very quickly, like, do you have a therapist who understands these issues and these, and these intersections and, and this kind of, in this community who could actually hear you talk about this in a way that you're not putting it on somebody else. You're putting it on a trained professional mm-hmm. because I feel like even going to your sibling, you're going to make your sibling do a lot of work that you need to do. You know, going to, you know, even if you go and if you go out into the world and tweet this out and go, Hey, are there any other trans people who feel like me? It's just, a, it's a mixed bag of people. And to me, this feels like this is a, like you said, this is a you problem, which I'm sure there's other people who feel like this, but first I think you need to sort of figure out how do I disentangle my uh how do i disentangle me so i know what part of this is like based on real life experience what part of this is like i'm making up something that has never existed like like you said earlier like materializing in somebody's room and setting their bed on fire and what part of this is like i just don't understand things that i that i feel that and i feel threatened by the fact that i don't understand things you know so i think that there's like and i and i say therapist but not just but i think there's a lot of therapists who wouldn't know how to do this and so to me it feels like you need to find a very specific, and you know, we live at a time of like therapy is more accessible. I know there's therapy that does financial aid and things like that. If it's, but I think that someone, and maybe it's not a therapist, maybe it is a some sort of maybe I'm sure there's books on this, but I, the idea of like you need somebody who is specifically around to help you disentangle it as messy as ugly as it can be, who is not somebody in your life who's getting that messiness on them. Yeah. I think that's really, really useful. Um, and I think to that end, I now also feel prepared to like engage with this letter on a on a front that's not just like I've read between every line and I know exactly who I think you are and I'm gonna like read all my assumptions back onto you. So thank you also for for helping me move out of that position. Um, you know, I'll start letter writer with kind of some of the same freedom I wanted to uh, offer to our first letter writer, which is just like it is genuinely lovely that you want to like connect with your sibling a little bit more and that you want to like reconsider some of the ways that you might potentially connect with other trans people. I also want you to feel a lot of freedom. It is not incumbent upon you to like connect all the time with like this larger trans community, like in order to either be supportive of your sibling or just generally to like feel like a good person. Like I I truly want you to feel freedom. Like you know, if you feel like I'd like to have some more trans friends or I'd like to know more people in my area, uh, you know, who can help me talk through some of this stuff, all that's great. But you don't have to. You are not going to be like a bad trans person if you're like, I don't have that many close trans friends. 
that is fine. That is optional. Um, and it is not like a measure of whether or not you're a good person or, you know, generally supportive of, of trans people more broadly. Um, so like just in terms of, I have a sibling who's recently come out as non-binary and I want to be generally like warm and supportive. Just do that. You know, just express support, say, thanks for telling me how you doing. How's it going? If you want to tell me a little bit more about what this means to you, I'd love to hear it. That would be really cool. Maybe if you'd like to hear a little bit about what being trans is meant to me, I could share that with you too. No pressure. Um, that would be a great response. Um, and, and don't feel like you have to go collect like three non-binary friends to show your siblings. You can be like, look, it's okay. <laughs> um, you, you really don't have to. But, you know, if you want to, I think then that provides you with an opportunity to think about like, well, which trans communities? There's lots of trans communities and not all of them talk to each other. Um, so I think it's always helpful to bear in mind, like, there's not just one big secret pizza party and you have been the only one on the outside. There might be lots of different trans people that you meet who you just feel totally alienated by. Just like, I have no idea what your life looks like. I don't really care to. I don't like your vibes. Be well, but stay away from me. That's fine. That's okay. That happens. You might meet some where you feel slightly more warmly disposed, somewhere you might even feel like, oh, wow, we have a lot in common. I would actually really like to know you. Um, so be prepared for a, a wide variety of possible reactions and don't feel like if you meet one trans person and you don't like them, it's not necessarily like this will be impossible for me. I will never meet anyone I like. Um, so I guess just consider that as like permission to have individual responses to individual trans people. Um, but to think about communities in terms of like they are you know, changeable. Uh, they are things that you can create. They are things that you can shape. Um, there's not just one big static community you have to petition to join. And if you don't get in, you don't get in. So wherever possible, get specific. Like, is there a local like LGBT center that occasionally has trans support groups that you want to swing by? Um, are there, you know, do you want to go to like a, a trans pride march in a couple of months? Do you want to organize like Organizer volunteer with a local group that, you know, works on, uh, you know, legislation in your city and state. Do you want to go to a party? Do you want to go on a date? Do you want to go on a friend date? Do you want to, you know, do any of those things? All of those would be great um, and perfectly reasonable. You could try them. They might feel a little artificial or forced at first. Um, they also might feel nice. Yeah, I think the I think the other thing I would say to that is like, and don't expect that first party meeting group activity to be the be all end all. Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't expect, don't just, like, I think sometimes it's just enough that if you walk through the door and hang out for a few minutes, that's the beginning of something. So don't expect that you have to, like, go to the party and be the life of the party or go to the meeting at the LGBTQ center and, and lead the meeting or even participate. It's okay to sort of, like, you know, get your toes wet in this whole idea and just sort of see how the, how the water feels. I think that's important because I think sometimes we put so much on like, I'm going to go to the thing and after I go to the thing, I will be healed or I will mm -hmm. be, I'll be the new version of me. And you go to the thing and it's not, it doesn't do that for you. And you think, Oh, I'm still broken. It's like, no, 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 just, just, I, I really give a lot of people, I give, I give myself a lot of love around, just, just walk through the door, just walk through the door, come on, mm -hmm. just go inside, <laughs> just, just take a lap around the room and then you're allowed to leave, you know? So and sometimes you will take a lap around the room and leave. And sometimes you'll actually sit down and you'll stay. And sometimes you'll come back next week. So I think that's the other is be gentle with yourself on this. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that I think might be useful to you, letter writers, you say that you think maybe some sort of, you know, 
knot of feelings has prevented you from participating in a trans community because of some kind of like unspecified challenge you have around like people who are non-binary. And I would just encourage you to remember like non-binary is a pretty broad catch-all term. It doesn't tell you a lot automatically about someone. Mostly all that it tells you is that they probably don't see themselves as a man or a woman. But beyond that, it could mean a number of different things. So it makes sense that you know, don't don't treat that as like, if somebody describes themselves as non-binary, we must have a ton of things in common and I must see myself in them as they see themselves in me. And if I don't, that's a problem. You know, you, you don't have to necessarily see yourself in somebody else's identity. You don't necessarily have to think of yourselves as like having a ton in common. Even if sometimes those people are like, I think we have a ton in common, you're free to be like, that's nice for you. Or, you know, like, again, all you have to do is be like, generally polite and like open, you know, you know, nobody's going to be saying like, I need your stamp of approval on my non-binary identity card. And if I don't get it, then that means that you're mean and exclusive and gatekeeping. So please do give yourself permission to feel free to think of that as like a really, really broad category that may or may not mean somebody has much in common with you. Um, and you are not required to say like, yes, we are trans in exactly the same ways, or you must also understand yourself as like, again, like, there's a lot of variety out there. There are non-binary people who also use the word trans to describe themselves. There are people who don't. Um, that, again, is is part of why it's just a big catch-all term. Like, it just, uh, it's the beginning of getting to know something about someone. It is not, ah, I know exactly what that looks like. You said you're non-binary. I now know exactly your whole deal. There's a lot of deals wrapped up in that um, in that one term. And, you know, if you feel like part of you is worried that I want to support my sibling, but I'm worried at the back of my mind that I'm going to have like a prejudiced idea about their identity that will come out. And that's part of why you've been like uncomfortable or nervous. I would just, again, really encourage you to be open to the possibility that there might be a lot of differences between your transness and your sibling's non-binary identity. That would be okay. You guys aren't uh, like canceling out any decisions the other makes. You're not taking away anything from anybody. You're not saying we're all identical. You're just saying like, this is a fairly big cohort with some like similar experiences and interests. And sometimes we can like find meaningful solidarity and like try to, you know, do something together. And sometimes we just say like, be well, good day to you. I'm going to go hang out with my friends and you're going to hang out with yours. That's good too. Um, so I think I just want to really stress like freedom, openness, do not feel uh, like there's a problem if you don't feel like a sort of divine and elevated siblinghood of of like spiritual essence between yourself and every other trans or non-binary person you meet. You don't need that in order to, you know, get to know somebody or to be in like some sort of meaningful community. You could be in a little bit of community with somebody. I like mm. being in a little community with some people, yes. you know, it's like, yes. I'll see you at the march. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or like, we'll, we'll turn out if we need to, to like look out for each other. But like, we're also not going to call each other every 10 minutes. No, I think that's true. I think the idea being that like we may only like to do this one thing together and that's the thing we do and then we don't need to see each other the rest of the I you know, I you know, I have friends who only, you know, it's, it's like I'm a, I'm a fan of mixed martial arts. I have friends who only text me about mixed martial arts and that's it and we don't have any other like there's nothing else we talk about. And I also were doing an episode of United Shades. It sort of reminds me again, it's not a one to one comparison about the AAPI identity. As far as like the ways in which America sort of often, and this is true all over the world, people come together over shared interests, even if the interests aren't exactly the same, because there's the idea that there is safety in numbers and power in numbers. And it doesn't mean that like when you think about the AAPI community, you're talking about that includes 
Japanese Americans, and it includes Hawaiians. Now, while they are generally on the same side of the planet, they are not linked in any other way. And yet there's a sense of like, we have shared interests, but it doesn't mean we're always going to be marching in lockstep about every idea or that we always have the same needs. And I think that's something that like, certainly I see in, in, in this community, it's like there are shared interests, but we shouldn't expect that we're always going to think the same way or need that or require the same things. Yeah. I think that, that, that it can be really helpful to remember that like being in community with people is not an automatic or a reflexive um, way of being that simply flows out of who you are. It's a choice. Um, it's an, it's an action. And, and sometimes community means like the people you fight with by default. Sometimes <laughs> it means the people you fight with the most. Um, sometimes you might want to be in community with someone who doesn't want to be in community with you. And that's a, that's a whole different kettle of fish. And so, you know, I think that line about perhaps my desire to move freely in the world has come into conflict with my inherent queer identity. I read that as maybe not necessarily like a specific commitment to like living stealth, um, but maybe a sort of sense of like, I mostly wanted to just transition, keep my head down, start living my life as a guy and have that be a pretty uncomplicated aspect of my life. And maybe I feel a little alienated or even frightened of people who want to make transness or non-binariness more visible because I don't really want to be that visible. I would like to be just one of the guys. And, you know, you can think about having different or even sometimes uh, goals that come into conflict without thinking like, if you get what you want, it's at the expense of what I want so much as just like, how do I pay attention to and respectfully think about actual differences without necessarily thinking I'm you know, it's a zero sum game. And like, maybe somebody else is like, I want maximum visibility. I love this. And yours is like, well, I, I do like my queer identity. And some of this is important to me, but I also really like flying under the radar a lot of the time. That is again, like, you're not wrong to feel that way. That's not a bad thing. That's not an impossible thing. And you can also look for people who share your values and goals and hopes again, in a way that's not like, just everyone chill out so we can all just be like regular guys, regular dudes doing regular <laughs> stuff. Um, like, but as long as you're not doing that, you know, it is okay to say like, my main goals have been like autonomy, freedom, non-exposure, uh, lowering risk. That's not bad. And that's not something you have to be ashamed of. Um, I, I think that's all I've got on this one. I could, I could go on a lot longer, yeah. which is funny because it's a very short letter and I just yeah. added a <laughs> well, lot. I mean, it, was, my own. it was packed. It was not, it was, it was, uh, you know, there was a lot in there. I do, The last thing I'll say is it reminds me, this as a black person, this is a thing that me and Kevin Avery, comedian, good friend of mine, that when we first met each other, it was almost like we were too similar to be friends. And so when I walked into the room, he'd be like, oh, that guy's here. Now I don't get to be me in the same way because he's here. <laughs> like I'd be like, yeah. oh, that guy's here. Now I don't get to act. I don't get to feel like an individual because he's here. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it was because we were both private school Negroes, as I would describe us, who had like sort of felt outside of mainstream black culture. And in a room full of white people, when you're the only one, you feel like a unicorn. But another black person comes in like that. It's like now they're not this sort of this weird like now I'm not as special as I was. And now it's just now they know there are actually more than one of us, yeah. which is really threatening my my grift. And it's yeah. And the idea is like, why don't you just become friends with that guy? Because you, you've always wanted another friend like this. And so that's where we eventually came to is like, stop being get out of your own way, which I feel like a lot of this is. There's a weird similarity with like British people in America where mm. like British people in America often have a really good time because Americans say things like, oh, my gosh, are you British? And then when they bump into each other, there's a little bit it's a little bit like um, watching two of the guys from The, the Music Man. 
run into each other like no 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 no! you have to get out of here this is my bit this is my town where i'm conning them into starting a band you you cannot be snake oil salesman yeah yeah (laughs) not that that's what any uh no trans or black or british people are snake oil salesmen no this metaphor is failing me and i'm going to abandon it Hey, you've got a new project. How's that going? <laughs> it's going. It's about a, it was weirdly, it's about a black man who might have been a, a snake oil salesman. Um, uh, to, to sort of connect this failing metaphor further. Uh, yeah, it's the name of the project is We Need to Talk About Cosby. Uh, it's a four episode docuseries for Showtime that I directed and was one of the executive producers on that is about the career and what I would classify as the crimes of Bill Cosby, a comedian who went from being America's dad to being a man who is accused, uh, credibly accused, again, in my opinion, of more than 60 sexual assault and rape accusations. And it's about how, specifically if you're a black person of my age or older, you know, my mom's 85, so she's sort of the same age as Bill Cosby. You've, Bill Cosby, been a part of your life for maybe most of your life and also been a, for most of that life, for most of that life was a figure of great renown and someone to be a, who is a, who, was, who wanted to be a hero and was a hero. And then in the, 2000s when the accusations start to come forward particularly in 2014 it's about how do you reckon with all of that and this is a story i do feel like it is it is many ways a story that black people reckon with but again if you are a person of any race who is like i'm 49 around that age you probably were you were at least aware of the cosby show if not watching it week after week like all of them like most of america seemed to be at that point it was the one of the biggest shows in history of television it got ratings that no show gets now. It got the highest ratings were 65 million viewers, which nothing, maybe the Super Bowl. And so it's about like those of us who felt like we got betrayed by him. How do we reckon with all of it? So it's a documentary about his career, but also his crimes in a way that I, that I hadn't seen done before. How long had you all been conceptualizing the project before you, like, was this something that you had decided like after the conviction came down was this like earlier on in the process like how long was this sort of um... i mean it really it was barely a process like it 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 started with a meeting that i had at boardwalk pictures a production company in la that does a lot of non-scripted series they from like chef's table to last chance you to cheer they do a lot of non-scripted and so that's the business they're in and i had a meeting with them just a general meeting to just i like their work they like my work and we were sort of just talking generally about documentaries and specifically comedian documentaries and in that meeting and this was in 2018 so this is after he'd, he'd been in jail for several years at that point and it was the idea about like could you do a, com- a comedy documentary about a comedian who had fallen so that very quickly got us talk about bill cosby and I said, yeah, you could do it, but you'd have to, where you talked about his career and his crimes. I was like, you'd have to do it like O.J. Simpson made in America, the Ezra Edelman uh, ESPN documentary. And we all thought that was an intriguing idea, but it wasn't something we took out and pitched to a ton of people. Basically, we went to Showtime where they already knew the executive, Vinny Malotra, at Showtime. And it just so happened that Vinny had been an executive at CNN when I got United Shades of America. So he knew my work. So it was really like this, like, I had been thinking about Bill Cosby for a long time. They had been thinking about it because Andrew's about the same age as me. We talked. They called Showtime. Vinny's around the same age as all of us. So we were all people who were like in one way or another compelled by this conversation. Yeah. And so it sounds like you talked to some of the survivors. Who else was kind of like on your uh, register of like people that you wanted to make sure that you talked to? Like other contemporaries, younger comedians, people in the industry? 
I mean, we reached out to a lot of people, and as I've been very clear to say, we have way more no's than yeses, but we ended up with people who did work with Cosby, like Joseph C. Phillips, who played Denise Huxtable's husband on the last few seasons of the show. Uh, we talked to a couple of women who were had small parts on the Cosby show who also are survivors. So they were in this world of like, I worked, I went there to work with him and ended up having to uh, deal with him. Like one, Lily Bernard was raped by him. Uh, Eden Turrell was assaulted by him, but got away. Uh, and then we talked to one of the producer writers from the show, a guy named Matt Williams. So we talked to a few people who were connected to the show. And then we talked to a lot of like cultural commentators and a couple comics, Godfrey and Chris Spencer. Godfrey actually had worked with Bill Cosby on his CBS show called Cosby, which was after, which was in the nineties. And, you know, and we talked to like a, an incredible list of like awesome cultural commentators, many of whom were black women to show up and say, how do we disentangle all this? How do we reckon with all this? And black women are in the unique position of like, even as a black woman, if you speak up to protect women, sometimes black men feel like you, you, that it's more important to protect black men, even if they're uh, criminals, than it is to protect the black women who have been, who are the targets of criminality. And when's it going to be available for people to watch? It's out right now. It's streaming. All four episodes are streaming on Showtime. And I know if you're going, I don't have Showtime. You can sign up for free for Showtime for 30 days. <laughs> so like the, Showtime knows you don't have Showtime and they're happy for you to sign up and uh, and watch all four episodes in the 40, in the 30 day time window and then see if you want to stick around for more, for more. Showtime, showtime knows you don't have Showtime is such a great bleak tagline <laughs> that I really hope the show picks up. <laughs> I think I I hope Showtime understands when I say that I'm saying like they they are trying to make it more accessible to you. And they're also they're betting that once you get in there with there's a lot of good content in there that you will say, all right, it's not that much. It's remarkable too. you mentioned that that Godfrey was on the um, uh, part of the show as well. And I remember he was on that episode of 30 Rock that briefly like alluded to the Cosby Mm. allegations a few years before they broke. And on that episode, he actually does a brief impersonation of Cosby mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. then there's like a, a brief acknowledgement of something that happened and like after the story was broken more fully people kind of went back to that moment so it's kind of fascinating that I mean there's a lot of moments in pop culture where like I mean there's family guy clips there's you know we have a clip in the in the doc of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler making jokes there's like those jokes existed and they were sort of it's just like you can go back and see Harvey Weinstein jokes from mm-hmm. before those stories broke there's 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 you know these Hollywood often knows these things or people in Hollywood suspect these things and they make jokes about it and they sort of, the general public just doesn't know what to make of them. And, but it shows that like very people are getting away with their crimes in complete secret. There's a sense of, even if you don't know the extent of the crimes, that something's going on here that doesn't add up to what we're, to what I'm being led to believe. Yeah. Well, that sounds fascinating. And, uh, you know, I'm, Looking forward to getting a chance to see it. And thank you so much for sharing a little bit about it. Come out. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. Uh, I, I so, so appreciate um, getting the chance to try to tell everybody how to run their lives together. Yes. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. 
Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Bottom line is you have a lot of freedom to pursue different conversations if you feel prepared to. You do not have to have any of those conversations. Um, You are not like doing something wrong by letting her get away with something if you just like take these nice emails at face value and then occasionally say like, by the way, we never really discuss our hobbies. Would you like to? Yeah, and I think let's also not forget, and I think this is a key part of this, literally one of the oldest tropes in the history of entertainment is mother-in-laws not getting along with the partners of their kids. <laughs> so like we have to You're not alone, like, yeah. You're not in some sort of like uncharted territory. So it doesn't, and often that just means that like mothers have a hard time letting their kids go no matter who that partner is. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.